Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. How are you doing? Right, yeah, good, thank you. Um, they are so successful, Def Leppard. I couldn't believe to read that they are one of only five rock acts in the world that have got two diamond... So uh, albums that they recorded in a studio. So Diamond albums are albums in America that have sold more than 10 million copies, only in America. And they have one, one of them had seven hits off it. I think there's only one other person who's done that. Yeah, that, that was Hysteria, I think. So, yeah. so what, are the, what are the acts? Do you know what the acts are? Uh, no, I'm guessing Pink Floyd, Michael Jackson, The no, Eagles. No, no, rock acts, rock acts, I think. Oh, rock acts. Pink Floyd aren't a rock act? No, Michael Jackson isn't a rock actor. I think, All right. Officially. <laughs> there any Van Halen on one thing. Um, oh, who? Uh, bon Jovi? Yeah, uh, no, it's Van Halen, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Def Leppard. All right. Ooh. My God. I mean, that is, that is big stuff. And yet, it is prob- very, very big stuff. And yet, but it's funny because I've been listening to a lot of it and it, you put it in that 80s context and sonically, it's posh 80s music. You don't really think of it so much as rock, you know but, what I mean? But they never got the credit that maybe they deserved in the UK, in their own country, compared to America, who absolutely embraced them. We could ask so, Joe about that. We will ask him. Uh, so, yes, Joe Elliott, welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune, for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them, and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at music. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. 
Hello, Joe. Welcome to the Rock on Tours, mate. Good to see you, bud. Been a while. Yeah, it's, it has been a while. Well, we see each other off and on, but we got to know each other a lot in the mid-80s, didn't we? But we'll, yes, we we'll did. talk about in that. In the strangest of circumstances, we found ourselves in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, yourselves, Dev Leopard, and occasionally, and Frankie goes to Hollywood, and occasionally Terence Trent Derby and one or two others passed through. <laughs> and um, if you remember rightly, we had this great hangout called the Pink Elephant. Yes. Where... I guess after we'd all run our course of trying to write the next hit, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, quick nibble, put on the clothes, and then sod it, let's go out, you know. And <laughs> we ended up having this beautiful little. Yeah. It was. It reminded me of a kind of an '80s version of the Hollywood Vampires, where in LA they had like Harry Nielsen, Alice Cooper, John Lennon, Ringo Starr, etc. They weren't necessarily all that like musically connected, but they were people abroad that were from the same backgrounds and gone yeah. through the same stuff together and that's what i always thought of us as people it was nothing to do with the fact that we were this rock band and you were this you know whatever you guys like to call yourself i'm not going to pigeon but you were just to us you were just people and that was the surprising beautiful thing about it is how we got on so well yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we for six months Quite a few of, of Spandau and Leopard were actually inseparable, you know. And it's uh, true. It was, I, and same thing with the Frankies. I remember Nasher, the guitar player. He was staying in the Westbury Hotel on the top of Grafton Street, and he invited me around for a bevy or whatever. And um, he had this little briefcase full of what we had in those days, cassettes. And there he was, the guitarist <laughs> in Frankies, with a with a, a, a this briefcase just jam packed full with Led Zeppelin and Van Halen cassettes, <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, so how did you end up in that band? Exactly. And the truth is, when you're a kid, you take whatever you can get, you know, I suppose, and you you run with it until it really starts to grate, and you know they lasted whatever you know two albums and they were done. But um, you know, I, I, I remember being um, that Frankie lived in this house. The band Frankie, Holly Ghost Hollywood, lived in a house, and I remember they caught the chimney alight in their house. Do you remember? There was all the. Were you there when that happened? No, I, that, I missed that particular <clears throat> bit. I don't know. All the fire engines turned up, and there was. But but we did used to hang out a lot. I mean, Adam Clayton, who was one of the, uh, yes. who's been on our show. He 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 was always out with us down yeah. down at in 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 the Pink Elephant most uh -huh. nights. But was the Pink Elephant a club or a pub? What was it? It was a club. It was um, it was the basement part of a club. What it was, you went in on the street level. If you went straight through, it was like a dance club for, you know, Stock Aitken and Waterman type people. And then if you went downstairs, that was where you had to get past the bouncer and the, the nod and the wink from Robbie Fox, who owned the place. Yeah. And, of course, you know, us, Spandau, U2... Terence Trent Darby, Frankie's, whoever came into town. Robbie Neville was even there once, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, people passing through for the night would come down and people that were living there. Clannad were down there, you know. A lot of the Irish bands, Stockton's Wing, Clannad, all these kind of, you know, what you might call diddly eye bands or Clannad a bit more ethereal. They would all pop in and out and you just see over a six, eight, nine month period, you just got to know people with a nod and a wink because you'd seen them for the second or third time. And they were dressed a certain way. You kind of guessed that they, they weren't chimney sweeps, you know, which <laughs> by the sounds of it, Frankie's kind of needed one. <laughs> and then we'd go down to the Bordello, <laughs> so wouldn't we? Yes, there was Lily's Bordello, oh, Lily's down Bordello. at the bottom of Grafton Street, which was the top floor. That was this, 
that was the secret bar, if you like, where you'd, you know, you could be rubbing shoulders with anybody from Ronnie Wood to Liam Neeson or um, Pierce Brosnan. You know, the actors were there, the uh, the musicians were there. There were many a time I've I've gone in that bar and you walk in and like Bono's singing Sweet Caroline or Song Song Blue with the pianist and they get me up to do Rocket Man or something. You know, it's just, yeah. it was a great time to to be a kid or, you know, late mid twenties, early thirties, whatever we were in those days. It sounds um, like there, there needs to be a coffee table book. It's like the yeah, sort of you know Studio what? 54 of Dublin. Yeah, if our memories <laughs> were that strong, it would be a great coffee table book. Yeah. I fear after everything we've gone through, it would be a pamphlet. But, um, you know, it was and we were all making records at the same time, weren't we? And, you know, not really realising how successful those records were going to end up being, especially Hysteria in your case. Well, same with you, you know, I'll be I'll be bluntly honest with you. I've often wondered whenever I've heard um, through the barricades have gone, this is a fucking rock song. We could have written this. He's been hanging out with us too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a great rock. You know, it was a, it could have been any rock band. You know? Well, you know, I don't know what came first, because I know I was hanging out down at the studio at Windmill with you a yeah. fair bit. And then, you know, I, I wrote Barricades at that exact time. And as we know, because it's going to have to come up, isn't it? The Gary did BVs. I, yes, I he did. Yes, yes. He did. He actually sang, uncredited, I'm afraid, a little bit like uh, Mick Not Jagger anymore. on Your Main by Carly Simon. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a few of them. I, I think Steve, I think Steve yeah. Norman sang backing vocals as well. We had a I, few people joining the, the gang. There'd be, Mutt Lang would get seven or eight of his round and Mike screaming, I don't know which song you were on, Gary. Is it Animal? Animal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what a song to be on. I thought it was a British oh. hit. I mean, there's a pub quiz question right there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I've, I've, I've never forget that, you know, and, uh, and it was it was it was such a I remember you coming over to mine and we were always talking about Bowie and we were always talk about yeah. the glam rock that we loved and, and Mott. And, you know, I think that's where we connected most of all, isn't it? Absolutely. There's there's no shame in what I call the letter Y, which is like you're coming up from the bottom and then it. It, you go left, I go right, you know. Um, this happened in Sheffield. I remember I used to hang out in this record shop called Record Collector in Broom Hill, 500 yards from my mom and dad's house where I was, obviously was living at the time. And I'd be leafing through, you know, picking up Slaughter on 10th Avenue by Mick Ronson to see if it was less scratched than mine because it was only 50p. And then this kid comes in with short hair on one side and long on the other, and it's Phil Oakey. Uh-huh. All right, Phil. All right, Joe. Yeah, Mick Ronson, give us that, you know. Big Bowie fans, you know, obviously. Let more obvious than us, because the music that Def Leppard makes doesn't really reflect, um, say, a history of fandom with David Bowie, even though I've actually sung, I think, now 33 Bowie songs, either for TV shows or on record. So, but there are, there's so many Bowies, isn't there? I mean, there is a, there is a rock Bowie. There is, but absolutely, you know. me and Gary were weaned on the Ronson, Boulder, Woodman yeah. Sea, Spiders... Bowie, and then obviously, depending on your point of view, what he did after that was either better, okay, just different, or not as good. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I think it's fair to say David's 80s output was a little um, strange. Mm. Um, well, as I think- was anybody from the 70s struggled in the 80s, we were a band from the 80s that struggled in the 90s. It's just how it goes, you know. But well, you can't deny the fact that we both saw Starman that, that fateful night in. July 72 or June 72, when uh, he's yep. 
flung his arm around Mick Ronson and the whole adult population, our parents freaked out if they saw it. And when Bowie did this. I had to phone someone, so I picked on you. It's the one, you know, we were, we were, we were in, you know, that was our generation. I, I, I started listening to music very early. Obviously, you know, the, the, the Beatles, Stones, the Kinks, the Who, you know, stuff like that. Um, but it was never my music at the time. It was just, I didn't reckon, I didn't know why I was listening to it because I was six, seven, eight, whatever, not even. But then when I was 12 and you become pubic and you become yeah. slightly more independent and you've got posters on your wall, you see T-Rex do Rider White Swan on top of the pops, your life changes forever. That's, right. and that's when mine started to flicker. And then it was Get It On um, and Jeepster. But then when Bowie came along, this alien, ex- I mean, Bowie looked great, but Bo- sorry, Boland, Mark Boland looked phenomenal. But With the glitter on his cheek. like a, a girl. Uh, David Bowie looked like an alien. He genuinely looked like he was from Mars, you know? And because he sang about Mars and space and stars and starships and stardust and stuff like this, he um, he kind of sinks into your DNA as this like yeah. otherworldly being, more so than Boland. But Boland was a big part of it as well. You know, I think if it hadn't have been for Bowie, there'd have been no Boland and vice versa, because I think they literally egged each other on all the way up to whatever success they achieved. Guy, I was at I was at Joe's house um, <clears throat> a few years ago now, and uh, and he he took me in his man cave, which is most of his house to be honest. And, uh, <laughs> and he had on, on, like on the, this one, yeah. And he, <laughs> on, on the wall, you've got all the ticket stubs from the seventies Sheffield City Hall. The, yeah, the, you, all the gigs you went to kept them all. It was the most impressive memorabilia I've I think I've ever seen. Total accident as well. You see, what happens when I, when I went to concerts, I didn't throw the stubs away. I saved them. And eventually you get enough and you're like, they're just kind of in a drawer. And you remember the days where if you took photographs on a Kodak Instamatic, you sent them into the chemist to get them developed. Um, anybody under like 30 years old now doesn't know what I'm talking about. But um, right. you sent them in and they came back in a green and white Fuji envelope, yes, yes. right? Well, I had a spare envelope and then I started keeping the ticket stubs in there and I put them on my shelf. And not so long ago, maybe 15, 18, 20 years ago, I was working away on my first ever laptop probably. And I heard this noise from behind me. And when I turned around, this Fuji envelope, which was on a shelf, had fell off the wall, off the shelf, which up against the wall, a good two and a half feet, like poltergeist two and a half feet, right? (laughs) And it was it was almost like somebody going, you need to do something with these and <laughs> push them off. So I owned this envelope going, what's this? And then all my ticket stubs were there. And I thought, oh, my God, look at this. Elton John, three pounds. Thin Lizzy, 125. Uh, um, I saw bands for 75 pence and 60p in the in the I think I saw Sabbath with Van Halen opening for them for 75 pence. In the balcony, but that was I mean, the thing, Joe, wasn't it? Back then, was that was that is up till some point? I can't remember the exact changeover point when gigs were cheaper than records. Oh, big time! Where you yeah. literally made the decision: can do I buy the album or do I go and see? And the and people would be playing like at the city hall or some big gig and the local poly. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We we were always hoping that the poly gig would start at eleven, so we could do both. You know, we'd go and see somebody. <laughs> yeah. City hall, notoriously, the penguins would kick you out at ten thirty. 10.40, you know, and, and then if the poly gig started at 11.15, which a few of them did, 
um, you could get both of them in. I remember, I don't remember who it was that I saw first, but we were at a City Hall gig in 79, me and my posse, all three of us. And um, we, we left the City Hall and we legged it to the Polytechnic to watch the Stiff Life Stiff tour. And it oh, yeah. was oh, okay. Reckless Eric, Ian Dory, Elvis Costello, Larry Wallace, who used to be in the Pink Fairies, yeah. and, and wow. Nick Lowe. And wow. I think um, Reckless Eric was playing drums for Ian Dory or vice versa. He was a mad mixture of people all played for in, in a... And that was the, you know. on that tour, yeah, when that went to the Lyceum, Elton got up on stage with them. Did he? Yeah, end up with all of them on stage with Elton, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that didn't happen in Sheffield very often. Yeah. <laughs> but this is this is the sort of eclectic education that we had in the 70s, wasn't it, into music? Yeah. And we weren't scared. I mean, I know I wasn't. I wasn't scared of owning, you know, a Bowie album or, or, or a Yes album or a Gentle Giant album, you know? Yeah, wow, Gentle Giant, yeah. Uh, I think, I think I after all, you probably were, Gary. I think you probably you probably didn't. When you went around to your mate's house, you probably didn't have that one on the outside after about <laughs> nineteen seventy eight. I, I remember we we used to frequent this record store called Violet May. We used to call her Violent May because if you didn't buy anything within ten minutes, she'd grab you by the ear and throw you into the street. But it was a great place <laughs> to get secondhand records or what was starting to happen at the time, uh, promotional copies that. Uh, People like the, the 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 guy that distributes around England. It's not. It wasn't as sexy as it sounds. It was normally a guy in a Ford Corsair. Does it sound sexy? Dinner. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. A ton of car, ton of albums in the boot of his car, and he would deliver them to the record stores. And any promotional copies that he's supposed to give to the owner or to a DJ, they wouldn't necessarily all get delivered. So he would take them to the secondhand store and sell them. You know, so you'd be able to pick up a brand new album with this stamp on it, Do Not Purchase, wow. for 50 pence. You know, I got two Jabriath albums, which I bought because he looked like Bowie. He did. And when I played them, I thought, this is the best thing I've ever heard because it was Mick Jagger singing Ziggy Stardust. You know, yeah. I got He was the American records. version of Bowie, wasn't he? He was a totally, sort of... Totally, yeah. Um, two great records, obviously didn't last a didn't even get started. But, but I'm not surprised if he's getting his records given away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there you go. But there was, you know, we had so many places where we could go and check out great music and take a chance. I bought many albums based on the album cover. Oh, no, and, that was an absolute know, thing. Uh, yeah. Captain Fantastic being one of them. I still, you know, I get annoyed when I look at the CD because you need a magnifying glass to get the detail. <laughs> but I sat looking at the cover of that thing for for days, and it was the same artist, I think, that did Butterfly Ball, which was this thing that Roger Glover put together That's, with yeah. loads of different singers. Coverdale was on it, Dio was on it. Um, you know, loads of, uh, Roger Glover from Deep Purple was involved. And, and that was a great cover as well. And if they were double albums like Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, you could spend, you, you were still reading the sleeve when the last song played. And you know, did you, I kind of miss those days. Did you Absolutely. do well, that whole thing of everything being significant as well, wasn't it? That's Is it. it mastered by Doug Sachs? Because everything was mastered you. by Doug Sachs, you know. I don't remember the day, obviously, but I remember as though it was yesterday, laying on my single bed at my parents' house, listening to Ziggy Stardust and looking at the four shots of the band, real face close-ups on the inside bag, black and white. Yeah. And... Everybody's nose looked too big because Mick Rocky got the camera in too close on purpose. Um, and just looking at them and soaking them up. And as a 12 year old, by the time you get to Rock and Roll Suicide, the last track of the record, you think you know these people. You know, <laughs> yes. this is beauty of music to kids. We're a sponge, we're a, we're a blank canvas. 
that just needs filling in and we have a choice to like or not like, you know. Or going back to Violent Maze, I remember taking <laughs> Are you a, sure a, that was a record shop? <laughs> yeah, sounds, yeah. Sounds like a bit of a, a bondage yeah. place, but seriously, she was a bit old for that kind of lot. But um, <clears throat> I saw an album by this band called Faust. And, uh, oh, dear, German band. A German yeah, yeah. Band. I mean, band. This, crowd, crowd yeah, but these guys made like Van de Graaff generators sound like the Bay City Rollers. And <laughs> they, were, they were awful. I mean, he, as, as open-minded as I was. Hang on, he's a, on next friend, week. Seven houses down from me was Nigel Percy, three years older than me. So I was at 10 years old. He's 13. He's bombarding me with Emerson Lake and Palmer, Jethro Tull, uh, quintessence, traffic, all those fantastic bands on Island Records. And we would, I, I got this Faust album, gave it a go, 25 pence, I think it cost. <laughs> couldn't, just couldn't even listen. It was worse than Metal Machine Music. Which is <laughs> all feedback, right? right yeah. Yeah. It was just awful. And I remember taking it around to a mate's house and leaving it there. And he chased me down the street to give it me back. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't even get rid of it. It's like a boomerang, you know? Yeah, you sold your soul to Faust. Oh, <laughs> man. Did prog rock come to you? Was it Roger Dean? Did that ever inspire you in any a way? A little bit. I was always impressed with the artwork, you know, these floating islands on Yes mm. covers. I, I found it a bit difficult to get. I, I remember hearing Yes through my mate Nigel, and it didn't really click until I started going to this rock club when I was about 17 years old called Improvisions, which was just a takeover of the Sheffield top rank every Sunday night, where you got to see bands on the way up, ACDC, um, Adam and the Ants, The Clash, The Jam, and bands on the way down, like the Edgar Broughton band, um, Trapeze, the Pink Fairies, who actually never really went up or down, but they were they were awfully brilliant, if you know we're what I mean. We're getting it straight in Notting Hill Gate. Yeah, was. you know, free gigs <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. How's the rent going there, boys? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, we would go and see these bands and, and just bond with whoever we thought was good. And, and other bands would just go past you, but you go, oh, I saw them live. And think, how were they? So, yeah, they were okay. You're soaking it all in. So at yeah. a later stage, you can you can sort it out, whether what comes to the surface. Bowie never left the top. Bolan started to meander a little bit when he got rid of Visconti and he started bringing in the female high vocals instead yeah. of Flo and Eddie. Yeah, yeah. It lost its magic And the me. kids show that he did was kind yeah. of odd, yeah. I didn't really it? mind that because I got to see Eddie in the Hot Rods and Generation X and stuff yeah, like that. And Buzzcocks. It, and yeah. Bowie doing Heroes. Yeah. I have it. Somebody gave me a bootleg of DVDs, you know, the, the whole series and it's, it's a tough watch unless you've got a bottle of whiskey. Well, and apparently, <laughs> apparently, apparently, um, you know, that was the last show. The one with Bowie on was the last yeah. show that, that Mark yeah. did. And he always used to do something where he used to sing and be on stage with whatever guest artist he had on. And he said to David, I've got you four bottles of wine in the dressing room, David, and you can come on and I'll come on and join you on Heroes. And David said, do you know what, Mark? I just want to do this one on my own, if you don't mind. Um, and I think, you know, there was such a feeling of like, you know, he was yesterday's man. He, he felt extremely sad. Off he went to the dressing room, drunk a lot of that, those four bottles mm. of wine. And then at the end, when he plays on that jam, you see him fall off the stage and off the out of the camera. Last time you ever see Mark on stage, he was dead a week later. Yeah. Tragic, you know, I mean, it was funny at the time to see it because 
Bowie burst out laughing and I dare say that Boland was laughing as well, you know, but I didn't realize it was like, because he was impaired. I thought he just stumbled on his platform shoes or tripped over his velvet loon pants, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the first gig? Was there, I mean, it sounds, sounds Joe, like there was basically music was always there and it seeped and it got more and more important. So there wasn't just this one. And obviously there's the, the, the Bowie top of the pops moment we all had. To, so was there like a first gig you went to? That First gig I ever went to was T-Rex which right. I should be celebrating in October, 50 years ago. Wow. I, I forget the exact date. I think it was the 23rd of October. I was just 12. Uh, yeah, electric God warrior. knows how or why my parents said I could go, but they did. Because back in those days, you weren't allowed to gallivant around the streets in a gang like... And anyway, a gang when I was a kid, all we did was run into people's backyards and pull their washing off their lines. <laughs> and knock on their door. With, yeah, we didn't go around with Kalashnikovs and stuff like that. <laughs> We were just innocent kids messing about. But they said I could go because they knew how big a fan I was. And luckily, my parents were pretty musical in, a, in their own way, you know. Um, so they saw this like, it's something he's really interested in. So we, okay, 50 pence for the ticket. And they dropped me on the steps of the city hall and up I went. And the gig had just started when uh, I walked, I pushed the swing doors open. They got those two like portal windows in the swing doors into the stalls. And they'd just gone on stage. He was playing Jeepster. And I'd never been to the City Hall before. I'd never been to any gig before. And all I could see was this sea of hair going up and down, like, like you'd expect to see at a status quo gig. And it was mostly girls screaming. But there were a lot of guys in denim that were probably Tyrannosaurus Rex fans. Yeah, yeah. They were going mental. And I was a little intimidated as a 12-year-old going, this is great, but I'm going to stay here for a minute just to acclimatise before I... Everybody ran down the front, so all the back seats were empty. So I could pick anywhere to go. But I was stood up, obviously, because I wouldn't have been able to see. And I just mesmerized by this whole occasion. Don't remember it in great detail. I remember it as a great wash of lights and volume and excitement because the crowd were as much of a part of this gig as, as the band were. So cut to nine years later, Dev Leopard have released their first album. He's gone top 20. And having done the clubs and the universities up and down the country from Yeovil to Aberdeen, we were then put into the city halls and we sold out the Sheffield City Hall in either March or April, I think it was April of 1980. And when I went down on the 52 bus for sound check, right, from my mom and dad's house where I was still <laughs> living, um, I walked into the, to the building through the door that I'd been through many times to get autographs of bands that had played there between 75 and 79. Yeah. And I walked onto the stage and I stood where Mark Boland was and looked at where I was uh, looking at Boland nine years previously. And the building had shrunk so much. Yeah. I thought, I when I walked through those swing doors in 71, the city hall looked in comparison now to like walking into say Wembley or the O2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I walked on to that stage and I could have spat almost to where I was stood. It was yeah. bizarre. It's a 2,200 seater, 2,200 people. So it was probably the same size as maybe the Lyceum in London or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but it was an amazing amateur shrank. But what a moment for me as a kid, as it was, I was 20 years old, to stand where I'd stood as an 11 year old, looking at where I was back at where Boland was. And now I'm where Boland was. It was a strange, strange feeling. 
you, you yeah. know, um, what was going on in Sheffield is quite famous. You know, the, the, the probably the first electronic band comes along with with the Human League. You know, making mm -hmm. make and mute records. I think was it. Well, I, I actually know. made a list because no, I was mute, quite but... interested so, because it's been really interesting, Joe. How you when you mentioned all these bands, seeing the Clash, the Jam, whatever, and Phil Oakey, and how you didn't seem to differentiate because I was wondering about what there was in terms of a Roxy because I did a quick search in 1977. Bands that were around in Sheffield was Clock DVA, Comsat yeah. Angels, great band, Thompson Twins, and vice versa, who became ABC. Right. So was that very much a scene? Or well, it was, it was a scene that I wasn't aware of because there was no internet, so you'd you'd only know about these bands if a mate said he'd seen them playing in a pub, or yeah. you heard them on the local radio show when there was a Beverly Chubb or Colin Slade were the two DJs on Radio Beverly House. Beverly Chubb. That played, yeah, they played rock music, uh, not Beverly Chubby, Beverly Chubb. Um, they they played like rock music, and they'd have a, you know, and now a local band, and they'd play this god awful quality demo of some band, and I probably heard these bands that were basically all trying to sound like Kraftwerk. Now this was all happening at a time where I was, I didn't hate Kraftwerk. I actually bought the Autobahn album but I didn't understand it. So I didn't get many spins compared to say, Jailbreak by Thin oh. Lizzy or- First gig I ever saw. Yeah, UFO, who yeah. were like, you know, this great guitarist, Michael Schenker, or, yeah. or the, you know, Bowie's transition. He was probably station to station by then. And, and all the other stuff that was going off at the time. I was aware of the Human League. We opened for the Human League on our third gig. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let me explain. So the Limit <laughs> Club in Sheffield was this brilliant oh. place to go and see bands. I saw so many people there from David Johansson, who had Jerry Nolan and Sylvain Sylvain on guitar. So it was three, three films in New York Dolls. I played for him. I saw Susie and the Banshees, Nash the Slash, that guy that wrapped his face in bandages and played oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. violin. You know, I did things like Barbara O'Reilly on the violin and stuff. Yeah. Um, I saw so many people play that club. And we played it. Our first ever gig was at a school where we got paid five pounds by the teacher out of his pocket. The next gig was in a field where three people and a dog came and it went dark and there was no light. So our mates <laughs> drove their cars in front of us and turned the headlights on. <laughs> we could finish the set and see where the fingers went on a fretboard. And the third gig was this free festival, it was called, where you didn't get paid, but they let everybody in for free. So it was a guaranteed full house. And it was the Human League, us, Charles Autry and the Deaf Aids, I think, and Molodoy, oh, wow. I think it was. And, you know, we had kind of rent a crowd. We had our mates come down and they came down the front when we were on and buggered off when the Human League went on, you know. So it was a really weird gig because... All the Human League fans would have gone to the bar going, boo, get off, <laughs> when we were on, and vice versa yeah. when they went on. So it was weird. And this was a Human League that nobody remembers or ever knew. Because oh, it was five-piece. Was it the night, five the, You know, the, the Human League that the majority of the world know is Don't You Want Me Baby onwards, yeah. you know, yeah. the Martin Russian-produced album. Back then, they played keyboards a little bit like Kraftwerk behind Perspex screens, yeah, yeah. which we always said, well, is that to stop the beer? Or is it like, because it's a cool <laughs> thing to do? We never really found out. Like I said, I, I used to see um, Phil Oakey a lot in, in Record Collector, but wasn't a question I ever asked him. But I've met him over the years. He's a really normal, down-to-earth guy, you know. And so I've never 
I've never kind of looked at that band and thought, you, you know, yeah, you know, there was them and there was us. I, I remember when I first heard Mirror Man, and I thought this is one of the greatest new Northern soul songs I've heard right. since The yeah. Night by yeah. Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Joe, it's, I, it's, I can see where this, song, you know? I can see where this why sort of begins, right? So if, if you think that Rebel Rebel, you're going in that way, Yep. And then there's Bowie Lowe and Vossava and whatever the electronica stuff he was doing, rather austere music in Berlin. And that's going that way. And so the Human League are catching that mm-hmm. part of it. And yeah. you you want sex and performance in, in, in your acts. You want yeah, we, glamour. We, we, I suppose we were clinging to, to the past more than Bowie's past than his present. If you look at the why that they took, it's also the why that Duran Duran took. I look at Duran Duran and I think, well, we, and, and not meant as a criticism at all, because we've all got a band that we might want to copy, but Duran Duran were the logical fourth album by Japan, actually. They they really <laughs> were. You listen to the first adolescent sex album by Japan. It, yeah. it was the blueprint for what Duran Duran were doing. And again, that comes from Bowie. I think Japan are, a, are a, an obvious... If Bowie had kept the spiders together and could have convinced them to change their image, like lose Trevor's chads and his buttery <laughs> grips or whatever you want to call them. And, uh, you know, Ronson would have been an easy fix, you know, but if he could have got them to dress like uh, Japan, they could have become a band, he could have sounded like Japan, but yeah. he didn't. So Japan did what Bowie might have done. And Duran Duran took that on and so did Bauhaus. I mean, I remember seeing so Bauhaus did, on the so whistle test doing, I think it was a whistle test, doing Ziggy Stardust. And it sounded exactly like Bowie. You know, I mean, his voice was, everything was affected. Yeah, but if you think about, you know, Tony Hadley on the first Cut Long Story short record, you know, trying to do his best Bowie, you know, but from that austere period. Yeah. Yeah. Which which you've written, Gary, which is what you've written. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm sort of interested also in that new wave of British metal that was beginning yeah. at the same time, because you were definitely part of that. The worst acronym ever. Yeah, yeah. horrible. Norbum, yeah. I remember. <laughs> it, it, it deserves to be the, the acronym, or whatever you call it, for some really bad union that looks after horseshoe <laughs> in Bethlehem. <laughs> you know what I mean? What is it? N-W-O- B yeah. The Northwestern yeah. Olderly. <laughs> yes, it's just horrible. Do you have a banner um, that's that's a tapestry that's type right. banner? Yeah, beautifully ornate. Yeah. yeah, satin. 
and a brass band. Hated every minute of that that phrase. Didn't like it. The thing you see, the thing is that we, we when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, you're bulletproof and invisible. You just have to be. If you're going to be a boxer, you don't get in the ring going, oh, well, I might lose. You've got to go in there thinking you're going to batter everybody to death like Mike Tyson used to do. When you're in a band, you have to believe that you can be better than all your heroes were. Yeah. You know, sell more records than your heroes. Or oh, what's the point? I don't, you know, I don't think you, Gary, or I wanted to be in a band that were like happy to open for Ducks Deluxe. You know, <laughs> we wanted to be in the same, ride the coattails of the genius, the Beatles and the Stones and yeah. Ray Davis and Pete Townsend. That's the ones that you say, I'm okay coming second. I, I'll take the silver medal behind that lot. But I'm not taking the silver medal from everybody else. So when we got lazily lumped by lazy media into this Nawabum thing, it was a timing thing. Because sounds, all the bands were coming up at the same time. The cream of the crop would have been us in Maiden. And there was other bands like um, Vardis, the Tigers of Pantang, uh, Saxon, Saxon, loads of bands down in London probably. And then we, because we were around at the same time we got bracketed in there and we used to say even then no 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 not being don't want to be part of that there was the mersey sound and there were the beatles <clears throat> so please don't label us because when the movement dies everything in it dies yeah yeah and i and i whether they were as vocal about it as us i knew that maiden weren't comfortable with it either steve steve harris wasn't and so we made a big deal. And then we got accused of being like elitist. And it's like, no, I just don't want to be in somebody else's gang. Yeah, we but what are you, our own five-man standalone band. Leave but Joe, what, what, what um, Def Leppard sort of were doing was so different from the, that, that macho, darker mm -hmm. uh, music that the bands you just mentioned were doing. You know, I think, you know, elements of that glam rock that you loved and tunes and hooks and pop, if you like, totally. was so well in, in, ingrained in your songwriting from an early age. Absolutely. It was the biggest influence on us. When we, in 19, sorry, 2006, we finally got round to doing a covers album called Yeah, which I'd been wanting to do since about 1984. Because I know this sounds odd, but one of my favourite Bowie albums is Pinups. I just think it's... Oh, me too. Yeah, record. yeah, yeah. yeah. Love Absolutely it. love it. And I always said to Phil, our guitar player, I said, we got to do pinups one day. we just got to do our pinups. So you know that if we'd have done some kind of poll before we did it, certain people in the media and certain fans would have said, well, obviously you're going to do Smoke on the Water, Sweet Home Alabama, Stairway to Heaven, Paranoid. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm like, well, they don't listen. When we've been saying for 25 years that we weren't part of New Album, and equally, in America, we were lumped into this thing called hair metal which was uh, all these bands in Sunset on Sunset Boulevard Poison. were literally were, you know, hairspray bands and stuff. When we got lumped into that, we'd just left Holland, where we'd been living next to a windmill for two years. And I'm trying to figure out where this meets in the middle at any point, you know, made no sense. But when we did the Gare album, you look at the tracks on there, we opened the album up with 20th Century Boy, we do Hellraiser by Sweet, No Matter What by Badfinger, Rock On by David Essex, Driving Saturday by Bowie, yeah. 10538 Overture by ELO. Yeah. The only things that were close to rock were Little Bit of Love by Free, Stay With Me by The Faces, 
and uh, don't believe a word by Thin Lizzy. The all British, all British yeah. and Irish. Oh, right? yeah. The only veering, the only thing we, where we veered off from Britain was to South Africa to do John Congress. He's going to step on you again. Oh, oh I love. Oh, you know, I, lo- I had that single. We did hanging on the telephone by Blondie. This was, and we, you know, we had to show the world. He said they don't listen when we talk, so maybe they'll listen when we sing and dance. So we gave them the real us. You know, this is the stuff. We did Street Life by Roxy Music, you know, and these are the songs that, that made us collectively who we are. Yeah. We've always, we've always said that for all, not necessarily just me, but for the five of us to make a comfortable statement of who we, we are, we've said a band with the power of ACDC, but with the, with the variety of Queen. Yeah. So Queen can do Tie Your Mother Down, Now I'm Here, Brighton Rock, um, that kind of thing. And then they can also do We Are The Champions or White Man off, off the um, Night of the Opera album. Bowie Rhapsody, for example. That's not a heavy metal band, but it's got mm-hmm. people might call a heavy metal section after the operatic bit in the middle. Yeah. That's the variety that everybody wishes that they could do. And yeah. that's what we've always said. Like, <clears throat> I listen to some of the greatest Rolling Stones songs, like She's a Rainbow, Angie, um, 2000 Light Years uh, From Home, I think it's called. Yeah. You listen to the actual song, and I think on most of those songs, the only people in the Rolling Stones actually audible is, is Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts. You've got Nicky Hopkins blaring away on the piano. You've got Ray Kuda playing the guitar on Angie. Right. You know what I mean? So they weren't shy to go, if the song works and we can't make it work, get in the wing, get the ringers in. You know, so we've always said... If, if we wanted to do a song that needed a piano, we don't have to have a piano player. We just borrow one for the song. And that's what we've done all along. Or, 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 a, great, needed... or a great backing vocalist, Joe. Yes, I was say, <laughs> if we needed our backing vocals. Uh, but actually, talking of backing... Band now, guys, but, you know? but Joe, talking of backing vocals, actually, I, I can hear the, when the sort of backing vocals you were doing with, with Mutt on, on, on Pyrotechnics and, uh, and after that, you know, I can really hear Queen and glam rock backing vocals. Sweet, I can, you know, like that that sort of call and response thing that they did beautifully. Yeah. Male backing vocals as well. Um, is that something you would have had a discussion with Mutt about at the beginning and sort of play him what you wanted, or were you just guys going in there doing it automatically? We wouldn't necessarily play the songs. We just name check them. We've never been afraid. In fact, he's been kind of part of our mantra for forty-two years. If we've got like six songs out of the potential 10 we want on the record and the four that aren't there, we will go, we need a song that sounds like Blockbuster. We need a song that sounds like Driving Saturday. We need a song that sounds like We Are The Champions. We would name check a classic song, whether it be 515 by The Who or whether it be um, Shangri-La by The Kinks. We would name something that makes your skin tingle when you hear it, It makes you... You know, there are, there's a, a few songs that will do that to me for the rest of my life. All the young dudes being the main, the main one for do, me. Do, do you know what? Just stop on that. Cards that. I just want to stop on all the young dudes for a second because it's such a great song. We all love it. And we, yeah. And I've been to see Mott the Hoople. And then when it comes to that song, you get up and sing it. Yeah, you get up and sing it every time. But let me tell you, let me just uh, to add something. In yeah. that Mark Radcliffe. Every the, night. Mark, yeah. Rad, Mark Radcliffe, the DJ, said that that intro is like the chimes of freedom. And I thought that was quite beautiful because he hit that beautiful, na, 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 you know, it is. It's, a, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. 
but but you your relationship with 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 Ian is, it's is a very perfect, tight. I mean, you read Ian Hunter's uh, book, and he'll he'll tell you any interviews he's done when he brings that up. Because Mark split up. I mean, just played some awful gas tank in Zurich or somewhere, right? And they went, "Is this it?" And they kind of had a fight backstage, and they split up, and they got the train and the ferry home, and everything kind of calmed down. And when they got back to London, Pete Watts rang Bowie. They must have gigged previously. And he said, do you need a bass player? And he goes, why, why, why are you asking? He goes, well, we've split up. And Bowie said, no, you're not splitting up. Because Bowie is a huge fan of the island version of Mott, the Brain Capers, Mad Shadows, etc. And he says, no, he says, don't split up. I've got this song for you. And um, so they all went around to the main man offices and Bowie played them Suffragette City. And Ian went, nah, it's not a hit. And Bowie was kind of... Not offended, but a little shocked that he was being pegged back by this band that were actually technically didn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I don't know whether he said, you got anything else? Or Bowie went, well, I've got this. And Ian, it's always, he's told me this story many times, sat down cross-legged on the floor, acoustic guitar, and played the kind of acoustic demo of the song. And Hunter says, I, I went cold. He said, that's it, that's the one. He says, I just knew it was the thing, you know? And rumour has it that the guitar intro was Mick Rouse. Mick Rouse came up with that. Oh, right. And the whole rap section at the end was all Ian. It wasn't Bowie. But, right. Bo but what was cool was Bowie's backing vocals on that song are perfect. The, yeah. the descending ooze over the beginning of the chorus when it goes from the A major to the A minor. And then the, um, the bits, the actual lyric, the all the dudes harmony that Bowie does. It's just genius. Yeah. It leaps out just like all the backing vocals he did on Transformer. If you're my age and you're Gary's age, and it doesn't matter whether you're me or him or Morrissey or, or say, Boy George or George Michael, there's a certain bunch of us that all kind of wanted to become musicians once we had Starman and Dudes, mm -hmm. and they all seem to be in the same like time yeah. period. Lyrically, Dudes was about people we yeah, knew. Yeah, totally. You know, it wasn't Americans. These were people. Yeah, I've come you know, to love this term. In there. I've come to love this term that I wouldn't have understood. I, I've come to love this term I wouldn't have understood as a twelve-year-old. Dystopian, and that's <laughs> that's what it's all about. You know, I remember the the picture sleeve for the um, for the single was this kid with a toothless grin and a cardboard guitar stood on what looked like a nineteen seventy-two still bomb site from World War Two. And it just summed up that lost generation that mm -hmm. it wasn't violence. It wasn't like Syria's lost generation. It was a wilderness where we hadn't really moved on from the end of the war. The buildings were still destroyed. But and there were say, still mounds of broken bricks. Yeah, because London, by the way, was just was corrugated iron. It's just corrugated iron, which is what we were yeah. I'm wondering Sheffield if Sheffield was, was the same. Yeah. Sheffield was because Sheffield was a steel factory where Everything got melted down to make bullets, guns, tanks, whatever. All our schools had these little walls with these stubbly little bits of metal on them. And that's where they chopped all the railings off. And that's what the school I went to was like. You know, and everybody's back gardens didn't have a fence anymore. And But what we'd gone through, by the time I'm 12, we'd had the, the gentle musical revolution of Adam Faith and Cliff Richard kind of mimicking Elvis and Buddy Holly. And then yep. we had this takeover in 62 with the Beatles. 
and the stones coming through. So you got the good boys and the bad boys. You got the ones who wouldn't dare take a piss around the back of a petrol station, and the ones that couldn't wait to do that so they could get arrested <laughs> on the front page yeah. of the Daily Wire. It was you. You were witnessing this, and you were hearing it. By the time you're twelve, it's eight years ago, and it's it's history as far back to you as World War Two is to your mom and dad. But it set a tone where musically we were breaking down barriers unheard of. Yet we were still living in with outdoor toilets down the back of the you know the back yeah. of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No bathroom. In bath in front of the fire every Thursday night. That's what. I, no TV till I was nine. No phone till I was twelve, and that was screwed to the wall. So you, you know, what I mean, <laughs> we didn't have a, we didn't have any of the, we didn't have a phone either. It's the four Yorkshiremen in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Joe, Joe, I've got to steer you gently, right? <laughs> Rather aggressively, actually. I just want to talk about, you know, when Pyromania comes out, and you, you know, you have this massive hit in America all of a sudden with Photograph, and and you become one of those strange bands that is bigger outside of the UK mm-hmm. than you are at home. And what was, you know, how did that feel? Because, in, in, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm selling records in the UK. That's my big country, you know, record sales. Getting in smash hits, you know, being on the front of the Face magazine. You are selling far more records across the Atlantic and being ignored in the UK. Yeah, what? it was very strange. Because we were a British band, um, it bothered us. Now, if you take a band, say, like Journey, who are American, who couldn't sell records in England, but were selling millions in America, they wouldn't have cared less. It was just some, to them, maybe it's just an outpost on the other side of the the Atlantic, the same way that we would think of the Falkland Islands. Um, I don't think it's that. I think for American bands, to sell records, it's like Hollywood stars want to do West End theatre. There is a coolness about it. You know what I mean? I don't not many American bands or their managements would care. They go, why yeah. would you want to bother? You're not allowed to go there unless they send a band over to us for this visa swap lark, which was going off in those oh, right. days. You're going to ship all your gear over. You've got to get these transformers because the voltage is wrong. And you're going to do six gigs and it's going to cost you 200000 to do them. Or you can just play down the road and make a million bucks. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. That was the attitude of a lot of bands. Mm. Now, in fairness, Journey did come over to America, to Britain, because I saw them uh, with Pat Travis, actually, in 1980. Uh, Leonard Skinner often came over. I saw Niels yeah. Lofgren. I saw Tom Petty. Niels Lofgren, I saw. Loved him. I saw Blondie opening for television. So that some of the American bands did come over. But it was really weird that we were very happy for the American success. And in many respects, it gave us this cushion to like, oh, well, you know, there's always the next album sort of thing. But it was like all your mates and your mom and dad going, why don't we see you on top of the pops? And you say, but we're on American bandstand. Yeah, but we don't see that, do we? And, you know, it was it was weird. It was very strange. But there was a there was a feeling within the industry about us. There just wasn't a feeling within the record listeners and the radio programmers. You've got to remember that when Photograph came out in England, it reached the, <laughs> the giddy heights of 41. So it didn't even get played first on the top 40 show by one place. If it had done, it may have picked up more spins. Yeah, yeah. One, but it just it- fell shy. And every other you know, single we released on that album didn't make any headway at all in the UK, but they did in America. And we ended up selling, at the time, over 6 million records. Now, 
Pyromania has long since caught up since the, the success of, of Hysteria, but at the time it was it was a bit of a disappointment for us, but there was nothing we could do. At least we knew we had the backing of the label because when you sign, it was only three years previous that we'd signed a six album deal. So we knew we weren't going anywhere. And we were also following in the footsteps of many great bands that would become, or artists that would become successful, not necessarily the way that Boston or Van Halen did, where they blow out on their first album and then they actually don't ever follow it. We were a slow burn like Elton John. How many albums before he took off? Six, yeah. maybe? Yeah. Um, Thin Lizzy, I think it was their... Well, it was Live and Dangerous, wasn't album. It? Yeah. They'd had a bunch of albums out on Decca and they'd had... Jailbreak was their third album on Polygon. Or, or, or U2, they took a while. You know? U2 was the fourth album. The 80s bands all seem to be fourth album syndrome. Worldwide, you've got U2 on their fourth, Bon Jovi on their third, uh, us on our fourth in the UK, but our third in, uh, in, in America. But we had to wait a while as well because we disappeared out of the face of the earth until June 87, when we finally what? finished Hysteria. That, and then... Yeah. The goodwill of, of the fans finally caught up with Pyromania made the you know a lot easier for Hysteria to become a big record. We had a, our first top ten hit in the summer of '87. The album came out in August and went straight to number one. We weren't expecting that either. We thought it might do okay, but a lot better than Pyromania. But he, so we went from here to there, like in from one album to the next. And mm. we thought about it and went, well, this is like what happened to Elton with Rocket Man. He went from nothing to here kind of overnight in 10 years. Because we formed in August 77 and had our first British hit June 87. It was yeah. almost 10 years and two years longer than the Beatles were together before we had our first hit. <laughs> Go figure, Guy, you know? Guy, what were you, you were about to say something? Well, I was, I was gonna say, because you said there was this huge gap because of course the stories of that album, the three years, the incredible, mm -hmm. because what you'd done was you took this level of kind of poshness in terms of production and everything that we were hearing with Trevor Horn records and Scritty Politti and stuff and applying it to a kind of rock record, which I don't think was, you were, had been heard anywhere else. Not really. Yeah. We started the trend with Pyromania. Pyromania, we used a lot of electronic drums. We used a lot of keyboards, which is kind of a strange Synth thing. bass. You had synth because, bass on um, some stuff, didn't you? We would use keyboards. In Rock of Ages, yeah. for example, there was a... Uh, 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 uh. But Sav yeah. played real bass all the way through it as well. Right. But we weren't afraid to add that as a mm -hmm. as a texture, you know? We always... We were never shy of doing it. Um, we had Thomas Dolby play all the keyboards, and he didn't want crediting, wow. which we found kind of an insult. So we made sure that the world did know. Uh, he, was, <laughs> he was credited on the album as Booker T. Boffin, as in Booker T. <laughs> God, and he was like, he did, he did foreigner as well, didn't he? Pay him a thousand dollars, and he'll come and do whatever you want. You know, yeah. Just, but <laughs> I don't, I don't want people to know I played on this record. You shouldn't have said that. You uh, should uh, not uh, have uh, said uh, that. You know, Joe, Joe, when it, when, Joe, so, so, especially when he turned round <laughs> at the premiere of Spinal Tap, and on one specific moment, which is obviously a rock band thing, he he was sat in front of me, and he turned around and just laughed at me. I went, right, that's it, we're done. <laughs> Joe, I, I just, so doing that album in Ireland when I first met you, uh, do, doing Hysteria, and um, 
I remember getting there and you'd been there for months and you'd been working with Jim Steinman producing yeah. it. You told me a story that the insanity of that, where he would order everything on the takeaway menu every oh, yeah. single day because he couldn't decide what he was going to eat. The first thing he did is he walked into Windmill Studios and he changed the carpet, right? He couldn't well, work yes with the old... Have I got that wrong? Sorry. You've got it, you've got it nearly right. When we were, in, when we were first in, in uh, Dublin which was February to August 84, we were just writing the record. Then we went to Holland to work with Jim because although Mutt was in with us for the writing sessions, he said, I need a break, I'm exhausted. He'd just done, I don't know, Back in Black, Four and a Four, um, a Cars album, all back to back, and he hadn't had a break in years. And he said, I need a break. So we discussed who the hell we're gonna get. We tried to get Chris Hughes, um, who turned us down flat um, turns out when I met Chris about 20 years afterwards, I said, why did you turn us down? And he went, I didn't. I said, you did? And he said, uh, I never found out about it. He says, that was my old manager. He must have done that on my behalf. Oh, oh. He was so bummed, you know? But anyway, long story short, we picked Jim Steinman. I don't know why, because he didn't even produce Bad Out of Hell. Todd Rundgren did. That's right. So his, his, his chops were more of a writer, and we'd already got seven or eight songs written Gods of War, women, animal in one form or another. And we went over to Holland and the first thing he tried to do was change the carpet in the control room. He did have the carpet changed in his hotel room because he didn't like the color. He did order one of everything off the menu, which was became a fantastic novelty because even though we were too stupid to not realize like the bad news scene in, in, in more bad news, when they're actually paying for the, for the food when they're shooting the video, this was all on our tab. Uh, not his. We were in a complex with four other bands, and for about three months, one of those artists was Mink Deville, and Willie Deville regularly used to poke his head out of the studio and wait to see if we'd gone. And once we got back in, his entire band would just clear the table, <laughs> like seagulls coming in after a, a whale washes up. <laughs> and eventually when we kind of caught them, he went, oh, I'm really sorry, mate. We're like, no, please do. It's just going to get thrown in the bin. So they stopped ordering food. We halved their record budget by letting them eat our stuff. Um, yeah, it got messy. And Steve Clark and, and, and Phil said, we got to get rid of this guy after like five weeks of working with him. Going, this is just awful. Everything we had sounded dated and just nothing like the previous album, which had been a huge leap. Pyromania was this Posh. enormous leap where we didn't make albums. We made the album in 82 and everybody was making albums in 82. They were just miking up the drums, miking up the bass and just sounding like a band on stage. What we did with Pyromania is make an album. We made an album the way that Kraftwerk made one or the Human League, we, we pieced it together. CC. The yeah. values of the songs was more important than that. We, we didn't care how we got there as long as we got there. And when Mutt said, we can make a high and dry part two, or we can make an album that will challenge people's perceptions of what rock records should sound like. And we were all on board for that. So yeah. we wanted um, to do the same thing with, with Hysteria again. And um, make the, but Joe, the Phil. Phil yeah. had the chops to do it as well. Phil's guitar playing is, yeah, you know, I mean, but we, we all, all had that. the ambition and we all had the, the wherewithal to listen to the boss. You know, you don't employ Mutt Langing unless you're going to listen to him. What's the point of arguing with him? Because this will work and you go, how? Trust me, I've done it before. Okay, cool. And you hear what he does and you go, wow, okay. 
I'm never going to challenge you again when it comes to that kind of thing. Oh, so but talking of which, sorry, now. just my little thing, Joe, is so the guitar part that was recorded one string at a time. Myth. We did it on one song on Pyromania, actually. And what it was, it was a, it was a part on the verse of a song called Coming on the Fire. And it's a two-string part that goes from a kind of a... Oh, it's only two strings? Oh, forget minor, <laughs> A minor thing. And the problem with it was that, unlike a piano when you go major minor, it resonates really badly when you play minors with a distortion. Yes. But if you play them a string at a time, they don't resonate because they don't resonate against each other because they're two separate performances. So for this one bit, Morton said, he'd done this before with... I'm not going to name who, but somebody that you wouldn't expect him to do it with. And he said, no, this will be great. So they just played the root note and then they played the moving note and it sounded like a piano. In other words, it didn't distort. Mm -hmm. And we told this story in uh, in one I could guess, guitar magazine and it just became Chinese whispers that we played every single guitar part <laughs> at a time, and I sang everything a word at a time, and all this, it wasn't like that at all. But if we had to do drop-ins on certain bits, that was no big deal. Gary, you'll remember, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing quite easily, the documentary part of the, do you know it's Christmas, when Boy George said, I'm gonna have to drop in for that end word, because he couldn't jump that low down from yeah. where his voice was to do it. So he had to punch in. Every singer on the planet is punched in for a word or of course. a phrase or a breath or whatever. Yeah. It's just what it is, but no. Joe, what, Joe, Joe when, when I first arrived at the studio that day, the f and I don't think I'd really took this in as a piece of news, but the first person I met really was Rick. And Rick took me in a room... And, and show me his Simmons drum kit. And Rick, you know, had just lost his arm. Mm. You know, I mean, just literally a few months before. And he was so excited about showing me this Simmons drum kit and how it worked. And I will never forget it, you know, that he could play the hi-hat with one foot. And, um, and just the idea of your drummer having that sort of terrible accident. I mean, just tell us a little bit about that whole moment. Well, what he did, he, he was in hospital in a coma. They'd managed to reattach the arm after the accident for two days. And I visited him and saw him with two arms. And his brother oh, wow. said, look, touch him. He's warm. It's warm. But then, you know, we left and a day later we get the phone call that an infection had set in and they had to take it off again. Thank God for him that he was unaware of this because I think that would have been crippling to, oh, wow. you know, mentally just torture to know that he had it and then he didn't. He did find out a lot later on when he was more prepared to hear that news, but... For us, it was devastating to think, because we were just thinking, oh, brilliant, he's back on, it'll be all right in a year. But then he lost it. And then the first thing that entered him, I said, well, how the hell is he going to do this? And it was Mutt Lang that had visited him in hospital. And the two of them, Mutt had said, you can still play the drums. He says, you know, do you play jazz? He went, no. He says, then you don't need to go on your hi-hat. You lock the thing shut and you go, which what rock bands do. So you've now got a redundant left foot. Get some pedals and play the snare drum with your left foot. So he ended up getting this piece of sponge at the bottom of his bed. A would help him sit up because he had no balance. You've got to remember when you lose an arm, you lose oh, wow. an enormous amount of balance. It takes you months to regain and relearn. Um, and he started playing drums with three limbs using this piece of sponge as 
just in his head. You know, he couldn't hear anything, but he'd be like going, and he would just keep practicing. And then one day he said to us, I can do this. And we all looked at each other and went, it's the morphine talking. Um, you know, and we were always like, look, he's not going to get fired. He's going to realize he can't do this and he'll, he'll leave. Or if he can do it, he stays. You know, he's a brother. He's, he's not going to get kicked out. We, I think that's just a part of our upbringing to be that way, you know. And so he, he was supposed to be in hospital for six months. He checked out after six weeks because he was bored shitless. And then he, after about two or three weeks in his mom and dad's house, he just said, I'm going back to the studio. And we were in Holland by then. So he came over to Holland and he just hung. He just sat in the control room listening to what we were doing with the now next stage of his theory, which is the after Steinman and working with Mutt's engineer, Nigel Green, who was a vast improvement. Um, and we were just, you know, watching him improve. He, he got this electronic kit made by a guy called Pete Hartley in Sheffield, which is now in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I believe, um, or it's in it's in a in a similar Hall of Fame. In oh, Vegas. sorry, I thought it was Dave Simmons who'd made that kit. Sorry, I... no, no, he he did have a Simmons kit eventually, I think, but it may have been Simmons parts, but it was all built by this guy called Pete Hartley. Um, it's like a go kart, is what it looked like, you know. And he he had this locked away. We rented a room in in Whistler Studios and locked him away in it. And he, nobody went in for four months. He wanted to make all the mistakes on his own. He wanted to fail till he got it right on his own. And we could sometimes hear a bit of noise through the wall. We'd go in for a few hours a day until he was exhausted. And then he'd just come and hang out with the band or go disappear for a couple of weeks or whatever. But eventually he came to us and he said, I want you to come and listen to something. So we all kind of tentatively walked into this room and he got on the kit and he played the intro to When the Levy Breaks by Led Zeppelin. And there was man tears everywhere. Wow. There really was, it was like, wow, you know. Um, so to speed this process up a bit, he kept learning and learning and learning. And eventually in 1986, we were back working with Mutt Lang who'd got over his exhaustion, come back to the album, very cleverly uh, disposed of nearly everything we did and replaced it by hoodwinking us going, let's just do a guitar overdub of that guitar, copy it exact, and then they'd do it, and then he'd lose the other one. <laughs> so we would eventually just have this record that we'd spent 18 months farting around on, but the actual record that you hear didn't take two and a half years. It took just over a year to make, which mm. compared to, say, the Blue Nile is a walk in the park. <laughs> that took five years and nobody bought it, you know? <laughs> so we fell okay I like, that I like their records. Yeah, me, it's a great record. Yeah. Um, so in 1986, we were getting cabin fever, as you can imagine, if you've been in the studio since August 84. By then, we've left Ireland, yeah. we've gone. Yeah, yeah, you guys Fra have gone. Frankie right? have gone. We've got you. You're now just you're just a number in our filofax. <laughs> and uh, so bands have split. Bands have formed, had hits, and split up while you've been in the studio. Probably, absolutely. Opal's <laughs> career came and went in the town that we did that record. <laughs> yeah. um, so we got offered these shows in Europe, um, Monsters of Rock Festival with um, Aussie Scorpions, Motorhead, etc. And there was, I think, one in Germany, one in. Two in Germany, one in Sweden, and one in Donington. And so we said yes, because we were just fed up. We wanted to do some shows. So we did five warm-up shows in Ireland where we took Jeff Rich out, who was 
then the drummer in status quo. And what we did was we rehearsed with Jeff, but Quo were on tour at the same time. So we had to book our gigs on Quo's days off. So we would do a gig. They would do like say three on one off and we would do one on three off to coincide with their tour. And Jeff would get on a plane on the morning of the Quo day off, fly out to Ireland and meet us on stage. And he would be our second backup drummer for Rick. And this went swimmingly until the third gig. And he was fogged in in Birmingham, I think it was. And we were playing in Ballybunion. We'd had two days off down there. It was like 90 degrees. It's, it's a coastal town in Kerry, County Kerry in Ireland. We had two fantastic days off. I think we saw UB40 playing the same gig we were gonna play the next night. Just had the greatest time. We weren't on stage until midnight because we had to follow a roller skating party. That's the kind of venues we were playing. <laughs> I mean, essentially had three days off. Um, and it, when he finally got to the gig, we had to go on without him. And so about 45 minutes into the gig, he arrived and sheepishly got up onto his kit. And I remember turning around during one of the solos to get a drink and I saw him and I went, oh, welcome. I didn't even notice he was there. So the, we decided for the second last gig, which I think was Waterford, Jeff would stand at the desk and watch Rick play on his own. And after we finished that gig, Jeff Rich, God bless him, walked into our dressing room and he said, well, I guess I'm going home tomorrow. Brilliant. And him and Rick Aww. just had this huge hug. And that was the last time in 10 years that I saw Jeff. I didn't see Jeff for, for many years after that. And then we had one final gig in um, the SFX in Dublin where we, we uh, Larry and Adam Clayton, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen came to see us and fair play to Larry Mullen Jr. Always been a big supporter of Rick Allen. He came backstage and he went, lads, it's fucking amazing. And he was like, just gave Rick so much confidence that Larry Mullen from U2 had said, mm-hmm. you can do this, you know? Yeah. So we went off and did these shows in, in, your, in, uh, in Europe with just, the, with just Rick on drums and, I remember when we played Donington, going back to the fact that it had been three years previous that Pyromania had not sold in England, but it had sold by then about 150,000 copies, which was respectable for a rock band. Um, And when we went on, we were third on the bill, perfect place for us. You could tell there was this wave of anticipation, also this curiosity. You could see kids trying to peer through the symbols to see how he was doing it but we'd made this pact to not milk it and we weren't going to introduce him or anything. But about 40 minutes into the set, I remember leaning over to Phil and saying, I can't not. And he went, no, you've got to. So I, some appropriate time, I said, ladies and gentlemen, please make some noise for Rick Allen. And as I've said many times, it was like a hairdryer. The noise, you could feel it physically moved you. And Brian May had flown up from London to see us because he played with us on one of our last American gigs. He's a big Leopard fan, always been a big, you know, he inducted us into the Hall of Fame two years yeah. ago, two years ago. Always been a huge fan and a great friend of ours. He came up to see us. Again, that was mind blowing for us that somebody would come all that way to support us in Nottingham from London, you know. And, and we went down so well that there was some great goodwill for the band, but he wouldn't really apply for another year because that was August 86. The album came out August 87. 
but they were ready by the time the album came out and animal had been a hit thanks to you gary uh, <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we had this uh, we had this kind of built-in audience and you know it's you know God bless them, they've been there for us ever since joe you know what the story is one of the greatest stories uh you know this rise against adversity that this boy went through. It reminds me, and I have to say, which was the greatest story I'd, I thought I'd ever heard until this with Rick, which was Reach for the Sky, Douglas Bader. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, it's the same thing, right? You know, I remember watching that film over and over as a kid, whenever it was on Sunday afternoons, yeah. and crying with, with how brilliant this guy, you know, this guy didn't, he's got two legs amputated, he doesn't care, he's getting back in the Spitfire. I remember the movie, wasn't it? Kenneth Moore that played uh, yeah. Douglas Bader. Yeah, Kenneth. Yeah, yeah. 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 Reach, for the, I mean, reach for the sticks. You know the um, other than the odd joke that you always hear, like, like "What's got nine arms and sucks?" Um, you know, Oy, <laughs> no. that, that was that was a, a, an eighties joke, which you know we're all hold very good. What he has done for the for the um, impaired physically mm-hmm. uh, people of this planet is insane. You know, we have had. He's had letters by the bucket load from kids that have maybe lost an arm and they've learned to play golf and he's been their inspiration or, you know, they've lost a leg and they've they've with, they've learned to run with um, a prosthetic one, all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's often cited as the inspiration because they've seen, he's, he didn't just make it once, like winning a gold medal in the Olympics and then you don't remember their names anymore unless they come back every four years for the next... 12 years. Yeah. He was constantly in, you know, every time we put an album out, did a tour, he was constantly in the news and has been for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing, like a museum almost, you know? So he's always been an inspiration to that, to, 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 to anybody. They didn't have to be, you know, impaired. I mean, just the fact that he can do it, you know, a lot of regular people. I remember Phil went to mates, our rehearsal room in Los Angeles, and bumped into Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush. Oh, yeah. The guy who's got like, you know, who had, God bless him, he's, he's, got, he's gone now. Yeah. But um, he had this like 45 drum kit, you know, and he says, come and look at this. And amongst all these Tim Barley drums and wind chimes and God knows what Rotor else. Toms. This little electronica bit on the side. And he said, you know who inspired that? Rick Allen did. And for Rick to inspire the drummer out of Rush, well, one yeah. of the most successful rock bands of yeah. all time. Well, one of the most acclaimed drummers of all time. Him, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know your reinvention as well, and into you know later on with a younger audience, with your connection with Taylor Swift is incredible too. You know, yeah. well, we were apparently her favourite band because her mom, she was in the womb when Hysteria was the biggest album in the world, and that's hence the album she recorded called 1989 is when she was yeah. born. But in 1988, her mom was an enormous fan of Def Leppard, um, big fan, and. Obviously, she heard this through the, her mum's stomach, you know, through the wall of her mother's womb. She heard Paul's of Shock of Me a thousand times or whatever. And she always said that we were her favourite band. And I'll never forget our one of our crew walked onto our bus with his laptop open. And he says, have you read this? And he turns it around and it's this interview with Taylor Swift. And he said, have you ever worked with another band? She says, there's only one band on this planet I'd ever want to work with, and it's Def Leppard. And we went, really? Well, let's get in touch with them then. You know, and the powers that be, the grown-ups all got in touch. And lo and behold, she said, yeah, let's do Crossroad together, which is this great American show where they they don't put like and like together. They they put oil and water together to see how it works, you know. It would have been great to see Elvis Costello and Motorhead, but it never took place, sadly. 
But, um, you know, they, they put us together and the idea was we do four of hers we do, and she do four of ours, you know. And he, she said, I have to do this song, Love, off a Sparkle Lounge album from 2008, which she really liked. She wanted to do Two Steps Behind. She knew that she, we had to do Sugar, but she said there's certain lines in that song that I can't sing. You'll have to sing those. And I, said, <laughs> you know, and I had to sing one of a couple of her songs, like the song Love Story, um, in a, you know, in a man's, perspective of a song written by yeah. a girl for a girl so I had to do the, the whole it's a bit like um he, he's so fine being she's so fine or whatever you know so it was interesting to to take that on and not be embarrassed by it all so I challenge you know we can make this work and we had such a great time we shot two shows which they pieced the program together from and it was really funny seeing the audience because what you had was all the young girls were down the front going crazy for Taylor and looking at us like, okay. And we had all their ah. parents looking at us going, yes! And they're looking at Taylor <laughs> going, eh, I don't know about this. <laughs> so it was a really bizarre kind of juxtaposition. I, I watched it, I thought it was really great. Insane. She was so into it, wasn't she? Totally. You know, and we did the, we even got nominated for a country rock awards at performance of the year or whatever. We didn't win, but we got to close the ceremony out with her. And we did um, Sugar, I think it was. And uh, when it finished, she just leapt on me. She just jumped on me and hugged me. And that was like her thank you and goodbye, you know. And But it was great fun. And yeah. of two, three years later, we worked with Tim McGraw, another great fan. We've got a lot of celebrity fans. Pink, cute, is a big fan. Um, Alison Krauss is a big fan. You know, because you, you, little snippets of interviews get sent to you by management to... They've got staff scouring the internet for our name coming up and things. And it's, you know, John Mayer is a, is a big fan of that. Including us, Joe, obviously. Yeah, and you, Gary, as well, God bless you, you know. <laughs> I must say, Joe, but that's one thing, and it's so nice and well-deserved, because the one thing I've learned from talking to you today, listening to you, rather, is that... Um, <laughs> Sorry. Is your abs... <laughs> your abs no, 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 it's fantastic. But is your, is, it's all music to you. You're so beautiful at not pigeonholing that, you know, it's, it's all music. I try not to. Miles Davis, I, I have to para paraphrase Miles Davis. He's the one that's credited for saying there are only two types of music, good and bad. And that's yeah. it, you know. Although, I, do you know, I had another, a great jazz bass player, John B. Williams, once said to me, which is true, he, he said, trouble with that is you're not in charge of music. So it actually should be there's only two types of music, music you like and music you don't. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Joe, I thought, Joe, I thought it was your, your soul music and our soul music. Yeah, okay, you go. There is that. That's very true. Joe, I, I've, just, I've just recently been asked by the guy that was our A&R guy when we were signed to Polygram Records, as he was in 1979. He's now working on, um, he's got his own kind of website and works with Spotify, and he says, I need you to put your 100 top ever songs together. And I said to him, impossible, impossible. And he said, well, try. So I did. And then I'm like, oh, God, how could I have left that out? So then I've gone to a top 200, which okay, apparently has been posted. And now I'm working on the next 100, and I'm at like 78. And some of the songs that I can't believe didn't make my top 100 just pop into your head in the middle of the night. You're going, how did I leave that out? Have you, have you done Desert Island Discs? Because that would clearly be a nightmare. Desert Island Discs. That's 12 songs, not doable. Eight, I think. The only way I could do Desert Island Discs is the first song I ever heard to the song yeah. that got me going. So it would start with... Love Me Do or whatever, and it would end with Rider White Swan. And it, everything in between would be mm -hmm. songs that 
made me go funny, but I didn't know what funny meant when I was seven or eight or nine, like tremolos. <laughs> it was like one of the first singles that I ever owned because when my dad bought the second hand record player from a jumble sale, it was on the actual turntable. <laughs> so um, <laughs> when you look at what's in my top 300, as it will be, I've, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I don't believe in them. I was once asked to put a list together of guilty pleasures and I put revolver, Actung Baby, McDowell <laughs> uh, on Main Street, yeah, yeah. Uh, Highway 61 Revisited, and something else. The so called Cred. Because that's, that's a very because, British concept, isn't it? Because yeah, we're I, so cool. I don't go it's there. America, Americans don't understand the guilty pleasures thing at well, all. I, I've it's got, just like, I like it, you know. You know, I mean, these aren't guilty pleasures, but there are things that people go, can't believe you admit to that, like Crazy Horses by the Osmonds. I just love music. Uh, Philadelphia Flyers, Run and Hide, um, Moments and Whatnots, Girls. These really great one-off hit singles that's, that are just kind of Motown spin-offs that are, didn't come out on Motown. ABC by the Jackson 5. It's not all jailbreak and boys are back in town, uh, you know, because I just can't go there. It's it's things like Stardust by David Essex. Yeah. Oh, yeah, rock on, rock on. Rock on. Rock on. Rock on. So one of the great avant-garde records of the, all time. The, the atmosphere that these songs create is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, Shangri-La by the Kinks. Um, some of the stuff that Pete Townsend did, that's not the obvious Who stuff. You oh, have yeah, to yeah. put one song in that's representative of one band, otherwise there's too many songs by any one particular artist. But it's things like um, not putting in Lucy in the Sky because everybody does, you know. So you go for something a bit more obscure. I don't have an agenda. I just, if I like a song, I'd be the first to admit it, which is why I said at the top of this podcast, like, through the barricades, it's a great song. It's in my second. It's in my three hundred. It's in my. Oh, we I'm, just made it in there. <laughs> I'm so honoured. Seventy-six because I heard it on the radio the other day, and I went, "How could I have left that out?" That's oh, I thought it was the one you woke up in the middle of the night sweating about. Joe, I don't think we have done a rock on tours that has mentioned so many acts. Yeah. I mean, if you're into rock music like we are, or pop music, or any of it. This has been one of the most joyful episodes of all 40-odd that we've done. I can't imagine ever wanting to be on a pub quiz team with anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a reputation. My my wife (laughs) says to me, she says, you know what? How come you can remember the catalogue number of a Sparks B-side, but you can't remember what you had for breakfast? (laughs) The Sparks documentary is coming out soon, and I think you might enjoy that. Um, it's Joe, on already apparently. What's what's um, what's next for for the leopards? Well, um, we have yeah. postponed our uh, stadium tour of America twice now. It was due to take place in 2020. It was I was due to be on it as we speak. Uh, it now starts uh, next June 22. So um, we have not let these two years go to waste. We have been remotely writing which um, sounds challenging, but is actually not as difficult as it sounds. I think a lot of people have dialed in a guest vocal by recording it in their home and sending it off to somebody in America. We've been writing like that because Sav lives in Sheffield, I live in Dublin. The other three guys live in in America, two of them in California, one of them on the East Coast. So (laughs) thanks to Zoom, thanks to uh, MP3s and Dropbox and uh, Bounce Boss and all this kind of stuff, We've been able to send each other demos and just work remotely. It's not the the difference between Phil sending me a backing track and me writing the lyrics at home 
or him doing it, if we're both in the same room, you have to walk out of the room to go and write the lyrics so they can get on with doing something else. It doesn't make any difference. It's what's going on up here. And then you, here well, El Elton and Bernie have never been in the same room right, when they wrote, exactly. wrote a song, right? Is that yeah. why they look alike? They do look no, alike, no don't they? No greater example, you know, and left to your own devices without having somebody hovering over you going, well, you can't rhyme that with that. Yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was liberating to be able to write. So we do have songs in the can. Um, so there will be more new music down the road. Right. We've just released the third of what's going to be four box sets. It came out about two weeks ago, um, two, three weeks ago, which is the, well, I wouldn't call them the wilderness years, but the, the mid period from 2002 to 2008, where we, um, we released uh, the X album and then the covers album, yeah. And then the kind of start of the climb back was this album called Songs from the Sparkle Lounge, which was a, a big album in America. It was top 10, I think, in or top 20 in, in England. Um, well-respected, well-reviewed, well-thought-of album with some great songs on it, which gave us our mojo back, you know. So that's just out now with, you know, the usual plethora of unreleased B-sides, bonus tracks from Japan, unreleased versions of this, different mixes, yeah. live versions and stuff. So that's just come out. So we haven't been idle. We've also just um, opened the vault, which is the Def Leppard vault, which is our digital museum, ah. which is expanding on a, oh, wow. a kind of a monthly basis. We do Q and A's with people. We um, we just did one with Ross Alfin, who's been our photographer on and off for 40 oh, yeah, years. Uh, just discussing literally 25 of 250,000 pictures that he has taken. Just a random choice of photos and what memories that they brought back. But there's ticket stubs in there and, you know, just rare memorabilia that you can go in and look around. It's it's a virtual museum. So we've we've really not wasted any time at all. We've we've really got our our hands dirty and our chops into just this time we away yeah. from touring. Yeah. I've never been so busy in my life. I'm actually more busy than I would have been if this hadn't have happened, this pandemic. Joe, I've got to say we we've such a pleasure having you yeah. on this I show. Totally enjoyed it, lads. If you ever want to do this again, you know where I am. Oh mate, I mean, you know, you outrock to the rock on tours. Yeah. I mean, absolutely love this one so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Okay, so there was I never thought we'd have someone who made Bob Geldof sound taciturn. <laughs> I absolutely love that, man. I mean, I think Joe is just the essence of what this show's about, essence of rock and roll. I mean, you know, he just made me yearn for, for some of those gigs, to be with him in the Sheffield City Hall in 1974. Absolutely. Well, also, the lovely thing is, because the way he talks about music and all music is if you didn't know who he was, you wouldn't know what sort of band he was in. It does, You know, because it's just all music. Yeah, you couldn't join Fantastic. the dots. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Wow, that's going to take some beating next week, isn't it? It certainly is. Let's hope we can do it. Whoever it is. And so just this is the reason you guys like the show. It's the reason we like doing it. So keep yeah. uh, leaving messages and all of that. And uh, and it's good night from me. And it's good night from everyone. Mm -hmm.